All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Salem First Baptist Church. We're going to go ahead and get started like we always do with our prayer meeting. I've got my prayer list up here. Does anybody have anything that they're wanting to add to our prayers tonight on top of the prayer list? Any new prayer requests of any kind? Start us out with today. I've, uh, the Bible says that we need to confess our sins to one another, and I don't know if this is a sin, but it was definitely stupid. I got home at the after church service last week and got to thinking, boy, I got done awfully early. I didn't, I didn't really plan to get done early. What happened? I got to, to poking through things, and somehow or another I managed to skip an entire page in my notes. So if at any point last week anybody was thinking, boy, it just seems like there's something missing here. There, there probably was. There was probably a lot missing there. Uh, I probably confused them girls in the booth to death. They, they're both nodding, so I know I did. They're, uh, they, they spoil me most of the time, and I'm up here abusing them by jumping all over the place and skipping verses and everything else. So you guys just, uh, if you'll forgive me, we'll go ahead and we won't make a habit out of it. and It'll never happen again, and we'll move on. All right, so before we get started with the verses we're going to look at this week, I just want to give a little bit of an overview, a little bit of a review of what we've looked at in the book up to this point. Uh, last week, uh, if you weren't here or if you were asleep or something along those lines, we started out looking at the Old Testament history, kind of the context surrounding the book that we're looking at. We talked about how it was uh, located in between the northern kingdom's exile and the southern kingdom's exile. Uh, and also, I came in here Sunday morning and was listening to... Uh, Brother Rob talked about the same, the same issue, the same subject, and instead of calling it the exile, he called it being deported, and I thought that is a way better word than exile. So if I'm using the word exile, just know that is the nation being deported. This is right before the southern kingdom is removed from their land. We talked about the role that the prophet Habakkuk plays. Uh, he's the messenger, the deliverer of God's word to his people. We talked a little bit about the structure of the book, exactly how uh, everything in this book is put together. What we're looking at right now is Habakkuk asking questions to God and God responding to those questions. So that's what we'll continue to look at for the next couple weeks. Uh, the first question that we looked at had to do with how long. How long was God going to allow his people to be in the condition that he was in? Now we talked about how that's relatable to us to the nation that we live in, as well as the church in the modern world, how that applies to us. The question basically had to do with whether or not God was indifferent to sin. Was he going to do nothing about it? And of course God comes and he gives a very resounding, no, he is not indifferent to sin. We talked about the judgment that he was going to bring as a result of that, uh, that he was raising up the Chaldeans, uh, your translation might say the Babylonians, uh, to bring judgment on Judah that they were going to be too swift to run from, too strong to fight. There was nowhere to hide. There was no peace treaties. There was no avoiding the judgment that God was bringing on those people. And finally, we talked about how that applies to us looking at the eternal judgment. We know that someday it's going to be too late. We need to seek the Lord while he can be found. We don't need to wait until the point where the hammer has already dropped. If you don't know the Lord, I'd like you to come to him today. Know that you're invited to do so. And I also read you guys a quote from a man named J. Vernon McGee where he said that this book starts with gloom and it ends in glory. And these verses we're going to look at today, those first rays of glory start peeking through. They start peeking through the clouds. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk chapter 1. 
We're going to be starting in verse 12. And I know that might be hard to find, so I'll give you a few seconds. But we're going to be reading through chapter 2, verse 1. So Habakkuk 1.12 says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them they share, their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. All right. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to break this up into to three sections tonight. The first thing that we're going to talk about is in verse 12 where Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And he says, We shall not die. And we're going to start with what Habakkuk starts with. He starts out with the character, the attributes, who God is and what God is like. That's where he starts this discussion. Uh, after we see that God is everlasting, that he's the Holy One, that he's the rock, he concludes from all of that, we will not die. That is the conclusion to an argument. Because of who God is, because of what he's like, he has absolute confidence that the nation of Israel will not perish. They will not be destroyed completely. That's that first little glimmer of hope that comes through. Notice it's not based on anything in Habakkuk. It's not based on anything in Judah. He is looking to God for his hope. And as he prepares to ask his final question, he makes absolutely clear that he is approaching God in faith. He believes God. He knows what God is like. He knows that God is holy. He knows he's everlasting. This is not a question where he's trying to rebel against God or fight against God. He is coming and asking these questions in faith. He is genuinely seeking answers from God about something that he can't understand. He knows that God is able. He's from everlasting. He's been here from before anything. The Bible says before the mountains were, before any creation was here. He was here before all of that. He was here long before the approaching Chaldeans. He was here long before their false gods. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. We serve a God who is able. That's the first thing that we have to look at today. He is able to protect us. He is able to be faithful. He is able to keep all of his promises. That's very important. If you don't have that, what he asks after that doesn't make any sense. He said God is from everlasting. He goes on and he tells us about God's character, that he is holy, that he's above all things, transcendent, absolutely pure. Another passage of scripture, 1 John 1, 5, says that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He starts out with the, the assertion that God is absolutely perfect. Everything that he does is just, it's upright, it's the right thing to do. That is a presupposition he has before he even starts reasoning from there. He goes on to call him his rock, that he gives us safety. Psalm 4.8 says, I will lay down in peace and sleep for you alone. Make me dwell in safety. If God is able, if he is holy, if he's the rock, 
If he never leaves us or forsakes us, then we should be able to say, like Habakkuk, we shall not die. Who do we have to fear? And where do you think we should put our trust? We should put our trust in the same place we'll see Habakkuk put his. And if you will, turn with me to the next passage. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. He says, But now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, that's Israel, and he formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. Now how comforting is that? Habakkuk is after Isaiah. He knows about this. He knows what God is like. He knows that God is going to go with him into the fire. He knows that God is going to be with him through judgment. Just like Isaiah says that Israel is God's, he has redeemed them. They are his people. The church today can say we are his. He's bought us. He has redeemed us. The Bible says that Christ has bought his church with his own blood. He makes the church something of a similar promise in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, a very famous passage, it says, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So who builds the church? He builds the church. That's why nothing prevails against it. Even today, just like in the days of Matthew, just like in the days of Habakkuk, When we see judgment, when we see evil, we must learn from Habakkuk, and we must respond in faith. It's not us alone going through the fire. Our confidence in that situation can't be in ourselves. He is our refuge. His everlasting arms are under us to uphold us. He never faints or grows tired. And the Bible says that he dwells with him that's of a humble and contrite spirit. He will dwell with you and be with you. That doesn't mean that there'll be no struggles. Uh, This verse itself says, you have appointed them for judgment. You have marked them for correction. It doesn't say that everything is going to be flowers and roses forever. It says that he will be with you while you go through the fire. The Chaldeans are still appointed for judgment. They're still appointed for correction, but God is a forgiving God. And he can sustain us through our difficulties just like he sustained Israel. The Bible says there's none before him, there's none beside him. He is God and there is no other. And he is a God that is working in all things. And that's going to bring us to the next portion of the sermon that I want to talk about. In verses 13 to 17, uh, he talks about how God works. And I think an old cliche that we used to hear all the time describes this passage perfectly. We used to always hear that God works in mysterious ways. I want to talk about that today. How does God work in mysterious ways? Sometimes we don't understand exactly what God's doing, but I think we need to have full confidence that God is still working. And in verse 13, he says that God's eyes are pure. They're so pure that he can't even look upon evil. There's no toleration of it. There's no buddying up to it. You think of something personally that's just so heinous, so vile that you can't even look at it. And this is what Habakkuk tells us God thinks about evil. 
But he told us, okay, God is holy. His eyes are pure. He doesn't tolerate evil. He can't even look on it. Well, that's when the question comes. He says, so why do you look on these wicked people and hold your tongue? He's saying, God, why does it seem like you're doing nothing? Well, here we go again, right? Does that not sound very, very similar to the complaint he had about Israel? He's saying, how long? And not just how long, but why this? He's looking for answers to his questions. Before, uh, if I could translate it into, into our modern terms, he's saying, why is the church so corrupt? Why is all of this going on? Why do I look out and I see all of these, all of these scandals, all of this injustice? Now he's looking out and he's saying, why are your people so oppressed by these other people? D- despite your people's unrighteousness, these people are even more unrighteous. How can you take these even more unrighteous people and judge your people with them? He looks at those coming to oppress Israel, and he just doesn't understand. He says that we know that God hates sin. We know that there's no unholiness in him. And Habakkuk just finally gets to the point where he says, I'm just I'm confused, God. I don't understand how I can take these truths. He's got good theology. He knows what God is like, but he takes those truths about God and he cannot get those to mesh with the oppression, the difficulty, the evil that he sees coming on the horizon. He says, I see this and I see this and I don't understand how to put them together. So while we're looking at God working in mysterious ways, I want to address two issues today. And I think we can, it's going to have to be pretty quick. This is only one sermon, obviously, but I think that we can address these pretty well. I want to address the fact that why does God work on the timing that he does? What should we do about that? And then I especially want to look at why does God work in the ways that he does? Why does he do things that we don't seem to understand? Can we still trust God while those things are going on? Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen says, wait on the Lord. One of the biggest complaints we have is that God just seems too slow. We want things done right now. I've fallen victim to this. I want them done now, Lord. I don't want it done next week, next month, next year. We're not the ones that get to decide that. And if you will, we'll flip over to the New Testament for just a minute, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse 4, talking about God's timing. Where the Apostle Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God is always right on time. That's what he's telling us right here. God has prepared everything. He has worked history together. He has organized everything leading up to this moment right when the Son of God needs to be born. He planned it before the foundation of the world. He knew when it was going to be. And he worked everything together so that Jesus came at just the right time. Romans 5, 6 says, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God has prepared this. He's worked this out. He has purposes that we don't fully understand. And speaking about purposes, if you look at Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10...
where Isaiah tells us that God is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God has declared the end. He's working everything out. While He works everything together for our good, while He works everything together for His glory, our job is not to question that. The Bible tells us that God's ways are above our ways, that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Do we really think that we can look and say, we believe that we understand the timing of when these events need to happen better than God does? I don't think this is an issue of knowledge. I think this is an issue of faith. Do you trust God to work all things together for good in His time? I think if we do that, we need to focus on the things that are in front of us. Our job is to know that today is the day of salvation, to seek Him while He may be found. Uh, My advice beyond that is that we leave the rest to Him. And beyond that, we need to talk about how just as God works in His own time, He works in His own ways. He works in ways that we don't always fully understand. Uh, And that's in our main text here, that's the the fishing metaphor. He goes in and he talks about how the Chaldeans are like fishermen. Uh, The Israelites are like fish. They have no ruler, no protector. They're being caught. They're being swept away. And it just seems like the Chaldeans are going to keep doing it. They're going to keep doing it. Is God never going to stop them? Why has God chosen this way to do what he's doing? And I want to tell you, this will probably be the most controversial part of the sermon. But I think I'll have you firmly convinced by the time this is over. God can take the actions of evil men. He can take the actions of Vladimir Putin or Stalin or Hitler or whoever you want to insert into that list. And God can work good out of their evil actions. That doesn't mean they're not sinful. That doesn't mean that those things aren't wrong. But God uses even these to work good. My favorite Bible verse is Romans 8.28. That's the passage that says that God's working all things together for the good of those that love Him. Right? Uh, that's, you know, we sing about it. I sneak it into every single sermon to make sure that everybody knows that that's my favorite Bible verse. But the question when you read that is, how does that work? I mean, does God tell us anything about how He works that out? And I don't want to promise too much because the first thing that you've got to understand is that our knowledge is limited. We don't know everything. I can't take every circumstance that happens to you or to a loved one of yours and tell you all of the exact reasons that God has allowed that to happen. What I can do is I can take you to Scripture and I can show you examples where God has done exactly that. How he's taken circumstances that seem totally unjust, completely sinful, and he has still worked good out of them in the end. So I want to look at two examples with you today. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 50. And we're going to be looking at verse 20. This is Joseph speaking. He says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about this day to save many people alive. So, all right, all our Sunday school graduates here, everybody remembers the story of Joseph, right? How his brothers have done him wrong. 
right? They, they initially planned to kill him. Instead, he wound up being sold into slavery. Uh, he works his way up through the ranks, and God puts him in a position of massive authority, massive influences. And what does God do? He uses that to save the lives of countless people. And Joseph looks back and he says, you meant evil when you did it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't forgive it. He looks back and he says, this was wrong, but God still used it for good. God meant it for good all along. And I want to give you one more example. Can you think of maybe one better example than Joseph? Somebody that was done unjustly in Scripture, but God brought some good out of it. What do you think? One, one example. Somebody take a guess. Okay, Job's a good guess, but not Job. How about Jesus, right? God did exactly that with Jesus. If you'll turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. This is Peter preaching. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. So Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the most holy and righteous man that has ever lived, was tortured to death by people less righteous than him. Does that maybe sound a, a little bit similar to what we just had? People less righteous bringing judgment on the more righteous? He died, but he didn't die for nothing. God did not just allow that to happen. He doesn't just allow unjust actions to happen. He was working in that situation. Jesus' death brought salvation to all of the world, including all of us. We can be reconciled to God. We can become heirs with Christ because of those actions that killed Christ on the cross. Does that dismiss the sin of those soldiers that did that? Of course it doesn't. But I think it shows conclusively that God can take these evil actions and He can still work good out of them. We're never going to have all the answers. But I think as believers we should still praise and we should still trust the God that is going to work all things together for the good of those that love Him. And I think in his word, he shows us some examples of how exactly he's going to do that. We don't have all the answers, but examples like that should give us faith that God knows what he's doing. And he can do what he says he will do. Alright, so if you're back around to the main passage for today, we're going to look at the last verse. Chapter 2, verse 1, where Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. So Habakkuk didn't just complain. He didn't just ask questions. He sought answers. He trusted that God was just in spite of what he could see, and he acted on that. He went to God to understand what was going on. And look at where he went. He didn't say, what does Habakkuk think about it? He didn't go down to the library and say, well, what what do the scholars think about it? He set his mind on heavenly things. He said, what does God think about it? We should expect answers because God has given so much to us in this word right here. More questions have been answered right here than we could ever think to ask if we'll use what's been given to us. But it requires faith to do that. 
It requires faith to seek the answers, and it requires faith after you ask the questions, because they're usually not answered immediately. We need to have the faith to be able to do that. Never lose faith because of challenges of this sort that Habakkuk has here. God can handle all of your questions. He has all of the answers that you need to have. Habakkuk expected to be corrected over his misunderstandings. He knew where to search to find the answers. So what do we do when we have a question, when we don't understand, when we're asking how long, when we're asking why, God, are you doing it like this? I think a good first place to go is right here. He's told us a lot more than we uh, usually look. Uh, We don't all understand how much has been given to us. We should trust in the Lord. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, their own might, their own strength. Right, But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. So the strength, power, and wisdom of men that it will eventually fail you. But God will never fail you. And when doubt or worry or despair is threatening to overwhelm you, Scripture tells us, be still and know He is God. Trust Him in all things. And when staring into the face of judgment, we should follow Habakkuk's example and look to God for answers. Let His Word be a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. Scripture says that the Word makes wise the simple. It will give us all the knowledge, all the understanding that we can need. And finally, we should trust Him not just for answers. We have to trust God for salvation. We all deserve exactly what came to Judah 2,600 years ago. But God has been so patient with all of us. He has given each of us the opportunity to repent and come back for Him. None of us were righteous. All had sinned. None deserved the opportunity that He's given us. And yet He has sent His only Son into a world full of rebellious sinners to die on the cross to save us. He's brought us hope. He's given us a future. And He's done it all as a free gift to you. You don't have to face judgment because of what He's done for us. The Bible says that all who believe in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. It also says, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what He did. If you don't trust Him now, I pray that you will. I pray that God's Spirit would lead you and be with you throughout the rest of the week. And I ask that you would remember today the God that we serve, how He works in mysterious ways, and that we must put our trust in Him. And that's all I've got for you today, guys. I'm assuming that we're probably very early. We are. All right. So does anybody have any comments or questions, anything along those lines? You guys have been taught well then, right? No questions. All right. Would anybody like to pray us out? All right. Bow with me, please.